With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was plain to be seen that the police official hated Godal worse than poison. And feared him, too. Why not look in the rogues gallery for this man who befriended me on the train? The chief laughed. For the love of heaven, Armiston, do you who pretend to know all about scientific thievery think for a moment that the man who took your measure so easily is of the class of crooks who get their pictures in the rogues gallery? Talk sense. I can't believe you when you say he picked my pocket. I don't care whether you believe me or not. He did, or one of his pals did. It all amounts to the same thing, don't you see? First, he wanted to get acquainted with you. Now, the best way to get into your good graces was to put you unsuspectingly under obligation to him, so he robs you of your money. For what I have seen of you in the past few hours, it must have been like taking candy from a child. Then he gets next to you in line. He pretends that you were merely some troublesome toad in his path. He gives you money for your ticket to get you out of his way so he won't miss the train. His train. Of course his train is your train. He puts you in a position where you have to make advances to him. And then, grinning to himself all the time at your conceit and gullibility, he plays you through your pride, your godal. Think of the creator of the great godal falling for a trick like that. Burns' last words were the acme of biting sarcasm. You admit yourself that he's too clever for you to put your hands on. And then, went on Burns, not heeding the interruption, he invites you to lunch and tells you what he wants you to do for him. And you follow his lead like a sheep at the tail of the bellwether. Great Scott, Armiston, I would give a year's salary for one hour's conversation with that man. Armiston was beginning to see the part this queer character had played, but he was in a semi-hysterical state, and like a woman in such a position, he wanted a calm mind to tell him the whole thing in words of one syllable, to verify his own dread. "'What do you mean?' he asked. "'I don't quite follow. You say he tells me what he wants me to do?' Burns shrugged his shoulders in disgust. Then, as if resigned to the task before him, he began his explanation. Here, man, I will draw a diagram for you. This gentleman friend of yours, we shall call him John Smith for convenience, wants to get possession of this white ruby. He knows that you are in the keeping of Mrs. Billy Wentworth. He knows you know Mrs. Wentworth and have access to her house. He knows that she stole this bauble and is frightened to death all the time. Now John Smith is a pretty clever chap. He handled the great Armiston like hot putty. He had exhausted his resources. He is baffled and needs help. What does he do? He reads the stories about the great Godal. 
confidently, Mr. Armiston, I will tell you that I think your great Godal is mush. But that is neither here nor there. If you sell him as a gold brick, all right. But Mr. John Smith is struck by the wonderful ingenuity of this Godal. He says, Ha! I will get Godal to tell me how to get this gem. So he gets hold of yourself, sir, and persuades you that you are playing a joke on him by getting him to rant and rave about the great Godal. Then, and here the villain enters, he says, Here is a thing the great Godal cannot do. I dare him to do it. He tells you about the gem, whose very existence is quite fantastic enough to excite the imagination of the wonderful Armiston. And by clever suggestion, he persuades you to lay the plot at the home of Mrs. Wentworth. And all the time you are chuckling to yourself, thinking what a rare joke you are going to have on J. Borden Benson when you send him an autographed copy and show him that he was talking to the distinguished genius all the time and didn't know it. That's the whole story, sir. Now wake up. Burns sat back in his chair and regarded Armiston with the smile a pedagogue bestows on a refractory boy whom he has just flogged soundly. "'I will explain farther,' he continued. "'You haven't visited the house yet. You can't. Mrs. Wentworth, for all she is in bed with four dozen hot water bottles, would tear you limb from limb if you went there. And don't you think for a minute she isn't able to? That woman is a vixen.' Armiston nodded gloomily. The very thought of her now sent him into a cold sweat. "'Mr. Godall, the obliging,' continued the deputy, "'notes one thing to begin with. The house cannot be entered from the outside, so it must be an inside job. How can this be accomplished? Well, there is the deaf butler. Why is he deaf? Godall ponders. Ha! He has it. The Wentworths are so dependent on servants that they must have them round at all times. The butler is the one who is constantly about them. They are worried to death by their possession of this white ruby. Their house has been raided from the inside a dozen times. Nothing is taken, mind you. They suspect their servants. This thing haunts them, but the woman will not give up this foolish bauble. So she has, as her major domo, a man who cannot understand a word in any language unless he is looking at the speaker and is in a bright light. He can only understand the lips. Handy, isn't it? In a dull light, or with their backs turned, they can talk about anything they want to. This is a jewel of a butler. But, added Burns, one day a man calls. He is a lawyer. He tells the butler he is heir to a fortune, fifty thousand dollars. He must go to Ireland to claim it. Your friend on the train, he is the man, of course, sends your butler to Ireland. So this precious butler is lost. They must have another. Only a deaf one will do and they find just the man they want quite accidentally you understand of course it is Codall with forged letters saying he has been in service in great houses presto the great Godall himself is now the butler it is simple enough to play deaf you say this is fiction let me tell you this six weeks ago the wentworths actually changed butlers that hasn't come out in the papers yet Armiston, who had listened to the deputy's review of his story listlessly, now sat up with a start. He suddenly exclaimed gleefully, "'But my story didn't come out until two days ago!' "'Ah, yes, but you forget that it has been in the hands of your publishers for three months. A man who was clever enough to dupe the great Armiston wouldn't shirk the task of getting hold of a proof of that story.' Armiston sank deeper into his chair. 
Once Godal got inside the house, the rest was simple. He corrupted one of the servants. He opened the steel-lined door with a flame of an oxacetylene torch. As you say in your story, that flame cut steel like wax. He didn't have to bother about the lock. He simply cut the door down. Then he put his confederate in good humor by telling him to fill his pockets with the diamonds and other junk in the safe, which he obligingly opens. One thing bothers me, Amiston. How did you find out about that infernal contraption that killed the confederate? Armiston buried his face in his hands. Burns rudely shook him. Come, he said, you murdered that man, though you are innocent. Tell me how. Is this the third degree? said Armiston. It looks like it, said the deputy grimly, as he nodded his stubby mustache. Armiston drew a long breath, like one who realizes how hopeless is his situation. He began to speak in a low tone. All the while the deputy glared at Godal's inventor with his accusing eye. When I was sitting at the treasure room with the Wentworths, and my wife, playing auction bridge, I dismissed the puzzle of the door as easily solved by means of the brazing flame. The problem was not to get into the house or into this room, but to find the ruby. It was not in the safe. No, of course not. I suppose your friend on the train was kind enough to tell you that. He had probably looked there himself. Gad, he did tell me that, come to think of it. Well, I studied that room. I was sure that that white ruby, if it really existed, was within ten feet of me. I examined the floor, the ceiling, the walls. No result. But, he said, shivering as if in a draft of cold air, there was a chest in that room made of Lombardy oak. The harassed author buried his face in his hands. Oh, this is terrible, he moaned. Go on, said the deputy in his colorless voice. I can't. I tell it all in the story. Heaven help me. I know you tell it all in the story, came the rasping voice of Burns. But I want you to tell it to me. I want to hear it from your own lips, as Armiston, you understand, whose devilry has just killed a man. Not as your damnable Godal. The chest was not solid oak, went on Armiston. It was solid steel covered with oak to disguise it. How did you know that? I had seen it before. Where? In 